Welcome to Amplify, a podcast that gives marginalized communities and diverse people a platform to share their story and reclaim their narrative. I went to the Middle East and I was afraid. I went to the Middle East and I had a bunch of prejudices. And I realized them later and over a period of time, but I didn't just like I, I wasn't I didn't just have this kind of enlightened realization after the 9-11 attacks and think well, there's some kind of misunderstanding going on. Um, how can I help change myself and other people? It was more like something really terrible happened from that part of the world as a result of something that those people believe in. And as a young guy, also just kind of was looking for an adventure. I thought, well, why don't I just go to a dangerous place? And while I'm at it, maybe I'll learn something. Before you enjoy the episode, we ask that you please support this podcast by sharing it with your friends and family and let us know what you think by leaving us a review and what you want to hear more on the podcast. Our message is to amplify the voices of marginalized and diverse communities. Just remember, it is most impactful when diverse people share their own narrative. Welcome back to Amplify. Today we are here with Eric Maddox from Latitude Adjustment Podcast. Hi, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. We're so glad to have you. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, whatever you feel comfortable sharing? I know your story may be long and we're kind of going <laughs> to touch on a lot of aspects of it today, uh, but just some a general overview of who you are and then we can kind of delve more into your story as we talk today. Sure. So I guess the simplest, like the bullet points, I guess would be that uh, I I'm American. I grew up in the U.S., uh, primarily in California. That's where I was born and raised. And I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian, evangelical, Republican voting household, which gives some background to, like, I guess, my initial exposure to the world and maybe where I'm at now and, like, the distance I've kind of traveled with wherever I'm at with humanitarian work and how I look at the world these days. Because now I would identify more as, I guess, kind of a left-leaning atheist. So, yeah, a lot of things happened in between those different like uh, facets of my identity manifesting themselves. And uh, I think that, uh, well, a lot of my work has focused on the, well, what's popularly known as the Middle East, or I think now people are referring to more as like Southwest Asia and North Africa. And my interest in that region of the world uh, really started because of my interest in the Bible as a kid. And so I had this very religious and I think kind of simplistic notion, very archaic notion of what the peoples and culture and traditions and priorities were, let, let alone the politics of the Middle East up through college. And then uh, right when I graduated from college, about three months after I graduated, uh, when the uh, September 11th attacks happened in the US. And I think like a lot of Americans, I was asking myself some questions and realizing that the world was going to be different, whether for the better or the worse, nobody was really sure, but just that some dramatic changes were probably likely to come about in the coming days and weeks. And that sure enough, that's what happened. And I was trying to figure out what to do with myself. And 
I had just finished studying uh, philosophy and classic literature for four years. And so I think in some ways that kind of helped me to pause and not just have an emotional reaction, but to question some of my perceptions and my assumptions and to want to test them. So what that ultimately led to was me finding myself in the Middle East for the first time, most exactly a year after September 11th attacks. Um, in uh, 2002, I enrolled in Arabic Institute in Egypt and spent a semester in Egypt and also traveled all over Lebanon and just interacted with people uh, for the first time, really traveling on my own and in cultures that were very different from my own. And I started to realize a number of things, but I think some of the, the most key and important revelations were just that I didn't have it all figured out, that I wasn't really getting the full picture of what the world was like from my leaders and from my media. I thought that like, how could we possibly be misled in a country where we have free press and freedom of speech? Well, I realized quickly how naive I'd been and how much my country, the United States, had invested in supporting uh, undemocratic rule in all Egypt for one at the time, which was still firmly under the control of Mubarak. And that started me on a path to questioning. And that later led me a few years later to pursue my graduate studies in international conflict transformation. And after meeting a Palestinian guy in my graduate uh, institute, uh, he asked me if I wanted to come and live in his refugee camp in the Haitia camp in Bethlehem in the West Bank. And so that was my first time in Palestine. And I spent several months in the West Bank and traveled all over um, the West Bank and Israel interviewing Palestinians and Israelis who'd been through the 1948 war. Um, so the direct participants and saw for myself for the first time what the occupation looked like and how Palestinians had been forced to live. And it, it changed my perspective forever. Um, what what little Christian Zionism I was still clinging to at that point, I think was uh, washed away by the time I finished my, my research phase. I came back to the US. I had worked on a, producing a small documentary film uh, while I was in the West Bank. And I submitted the results of that to a small film festival and to a competition to the New Mexico State Governor's Office. And I won some cash to go and do a similar project along the US-Mexico border. And so I spent about a year and a half traveling back and forth between uh, the Southern United States and Mexico, interviewing people on both sides of the, the fence. There was still a very big wall well before Trump was ever in the picture, uh, just for a lot of people who might not be aware of that. Even Americans, there's plenty of Americans that don't know that there was a hundreds of miles of border wall that were around years before uh, Trump was elected. And I went back and forth across that wall, interviewing people on both sides about what life was like. I interviewed people uh, in the U.S. who were uh, immigrants. And in the midst of doing that project, had a realization. First of all, the, the so-called Arab Spring was popping off at about this time. We're at like 2011 now. And I thought, well, I want to connect people in a different way. What if we just got them, instead of speaking to my camera, um, or just to me, what if they spoke to each other uh, over a virtual connection? And so I had this idea to get Mexicans and Americans to sit down and have a dinner together over the internet um, between Ciudad Juarez and Mexico, which was at that time the murder capital of the world. Um, it was, it's right on the border near El Paso, Texas, and a major conduit for drugs coming into the U.S. And uh, with a 
citizens in New Mexico in the US to just talk about perceptions in life on both sides of the border. And then a few months after that, I posted, I had done a few trial versions of this idea called the Virtual Dinner Guest Project and was just itching to get back to the Middle East when I saw all the political changes uh, that were happening or that were hopefully going to happen. And so I posted on Facebook toward the end of 2011 uh, that I was gonna just buy a ticket to Beirut and see and crowdfund this concept once I got back to the Middle East and to connect to American universities and cultural centers from what, however long I could stay in the Middle East and how, however far I could travel um, to as many places and peoples as possible. And what I thought was gonna be maybe like a two or three month um, experiment turned into four years of pretty much nonstop travel. I wound up going back and forth between Lebanon and Egypt many, many times. I wound up in Northern Syria about 18 months after the war there had started, or at least after the protests had started that morphed into the war. Uh, I wound up in Gaza, uh, Tunisia, um, uh, Turkey, uh, Jordan, and then also at a certain point wound up in India and connecting Indians and Pakistanis and did about 80 versions of these virtual dinner connections, which also morphed into a collaborative filmmaking project at a certain point. And that brings us up to about 2017, bef uh, right before I started the podcast. So maybe I should stop there. Yeah, you told us a lot of your story. I was going to ask you some of those questions later, but it's truly inspiring how you made a 360 in your story. And I found it particularly interesting that a lot of this spiraled from the events of 9-11 where a lot of people's misconceptions of Arabs um, construed and people were, were more negative towards the situation, but you turned it into an opportunity to learn and you actually went to those communities and to those countries to truly learn about those people. So I, I found that super interesting that you're probably the opposite of what most Americans had thought at that time. And you weren't necessarily fearful to interact with these people, but you were willing to see, to see what the media missed about these people and what this event caused people to think about people that maybe look like me or, or are Arab in general or are Muslim in general too. Um, so we kind of covered your virtual dinner guest project. Um, there's a kind of a, a big question I wanted to ask you throughout your whole travels. You, I feel like you've probably been everywhere in the world from that small, you gave a small list, but I'm sure you've probably been way more places just how you're talking. But what from your travels have you, have you wished people would understand about misunderstood places in communities? Yeah, I think that I would back up a little bit too just to address your summary of, of my transformation a bit too, because in some ways I think you're giving me too much credit. <laughs> um, and I want to be honest with people about the fact that like, I went to the Middle East and I was afraid. I went to the Middle East and I had a bunch of prejudices and I realized them later and over a period of time, but I didn't just like, I, I wasn't, I didn't just have this kind of enlightened realization after the 9-11 attacks and think, there's some kind of misunderstanding going on. Um, how can I help change myself and other people? It was more like something really terrible happened from that part of the world as a result of something that those people believe in. And as a young guy also just kind of was looking for an adventure, I thought, well, why don't I just go to a dangerous place? And while I'm at it, maybe I'll learn something. It wasn't really all that enlightened, you know, like uh, I was open to learning. I traveled a bit before that. Um, and that probably helped me to be open to new experiences. 
but I went there and made a fool of myself um, and have pretty consistently at different points ever since. And I've had to be stopped by people, corrected by them. And what I would say about specifically like the, the different Arab communities that I came across was that looking back on it, something I don't think I even appreciated in the moment was how patient people were with me. You know, at a time when like I was in Egypt in like late 2002, this was right before the U.S. was about to invade Iraq. And it was very much being discussed while I was there. And people, I'm sure there were some people who just looked at me like as, you know, maybe a, a symptom of my own cultures and my own nation's arrogance. But, but nobody was hostile to me. And that was one of the things that really took me back. Because the, so much of like the image, as I'm sure you're aware, that gets portrayed in Hollywood and Western media culture is like you just get like the angry Arab, the crowds of people burning flags and like screaming death to whatever, and all of the, the obvious tropes and stereotypes about Muslims, etc. And, you know, I didn't ever really feel any hostility towards me um, for where I came from throughout all of my travels, I haven't felt the need to hide where I'm from either. It's been a way to start a conversation um, and to learn and to help educate other people also about the fact that, you know, Americans have different opinions. We don't all necessarily agree with our leadership, whoever they might be. So one of the things that I, some of the things that I might wish people understood about misunderstood places, generally speaking, I'm just, I'm not trying to posture myself as somebody that's got all the answers. I'm just trying to, in a way, take people on, you know, the journey that I've been on that was sparked by like a little seed of curiosity, you know, and that, that, that managed to germinate even in the midst of like all of the prejudices and ignorance that I had in myself, because other people were willing to be patient with me, take time to explain things to me, not get offended by my, uh, by my, by my arrogance and presumptuousness about their culture. And so a little bit of curiosity, I think can go a long way. I think that in many ways, curiosity is, can be a redemptive force for humanity. That it's what steers you through like your ignorance and away from just allowing it to morph into fear and fear that then becomes hatred and hatred as it becomes violent. Um, I think that if you, you just continue to remain skeptical of your own assumptions and wanting to understand what motivates other people and why they think and behave the way that they do, um, we could avoid a lot of unnecessary suffering that's born from going the wrong path with our ignorance. We're all, ignorance to, we're all ignorant to some degree. It's what we decide to do with it that matters. I really like, I really like that. Like it, you kind of went through the stages of what, of what if you don't have like curiosity like what stages people can go through and i feel like mm. i'm probably giving you a good enough credit because during that time um especially during 9 11 like your curiosity kind of combated your fear in a way where you're willing to take that step at least you were willing to even take the step to go and see something different, even if you were a little bit fearful, because a lot of people weren't doing that at that time. They were more like distancing themselves from Muslim people and kind of resorting to to kind of that progression of events that you mentioned before, where mm -hmm. people were going more violent or 
more hatred heavy towards Muslims and you kind of took the opposite route that eventually led you to to better steps in that progression of events that you mentioned so we kind of went we went through your virtual dinner guest project mm. so you have a lot of steps in your story mm. so let's kind of let's make our way towards the open roads media so tell us a little bit about that what was the purpose of mm. it and your organization and how is it starting a nonprofit organization in a different country? So you're here, you're an American, and then you have to figure out a whole new system in a different country. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of walk us through that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So let's see, at this point, we're up to 2015. That's when I started Open Roads Media, which is actually based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, at that time, um, I had spent a significant amount of time uh, bouncing around the Middle East, watching the the Arab Spring kind of come undone in Egypt and uh, and other places, obviously, um, Syria, et cetera. And so I was in India. I spent about eight months in India. And I, long story short, I was in the middle of like this 10 day silent Buddhist meditation retreat, or like you just sit and meditate for about 15 hours a day or something. Oh my God, and I don't think I could do that. <laughs> I didn't think I could either. And I haven't done it since, although I'd like to try it again. But one of the things that happened was just having some clarity about what I wanted to do with my life. I'd been traveling around with a backpack. I had some kind of unhealthy like habits in my life for coping with loneliness and stress. And I think that meditation helped a bit getting some clarity about direction. And I'd had some also, to be honest, I'd had some not so great experiences in the Middle East, but more to do with just having my work attacked for political reasons. Um, that it wasn't necessarily so welcome by people who wanted to maintain the established order to have some American guy running around teaching people how to do free speech media projects. <laughs> you know, I was a little bit naive about how that would be received by certain people. And so I also realized just being a guy with a backpack and some ideas uh, isn't enough really to have credibility after a certain point. You need an organization behind you. So it was just a practical decision. It was, all right, I need to establish this as some sort of organization. I need to at least have some kind of a board behind it. And uh, my dear friend, uh, Leila Mohaiber, who was actually one of the founding members of the NGO. She's also now a co-host on my podcast, Attitude Adjustment. Um, we started this organization together, and it was a collection of us kind of scattered all over the world um, and just organized it on paper. And in 2015, I did something kind of similar to what I did when I went to Lebanon in 2012. I, just, I had just enough money to like, get a ticket from India to Amsterdam and enough money to pay for like a bed in someone's basement and spent everything I had left to just get this thing made legal. And that happened 2015, as you may remember, and as a lot of people may remember, at least who follow what's happening in the Middle East and global human rights issues, that was when a massive wave of refugees came to Europe, the largest wave of refugees in European soil since the Second World War. And I just happened to find myself in the middle of it weeks after incorporating this nonprofit. I got on a bus and went from Amsterdam down to uh, Serbia. And when I got off the bus, these people were coming up to me and asking me how to find a taxi in Arabic and saying that they wanted to go to Germany. 
And I was like, where are you from? And they were, they were all from Syria. And you know the story. Everybody who's been following the news at all knows the story of what ended up happening in the following weeks. It became the biggest news story in the world. And I just wound up accidentally in the middle of it. And what I had come to do was to launch a variation on the virtual dinner guest project called the virtual iftar project and to have people in uh, European countries sit down and experience like the cultural like phenomenon of Ramadan through yeah. breaking the fast I love with that. Ramadan in, other, in other countries. So yeah, yeah, it was, I want to do it again, but we connected um, people in Kosovo, which is actually Muslim majority country in Europe, um, and in Germany and in the Netherlands to, let's see, to Gaza, to Pakistan and to Egypt and just gave them the experience of what it was like to break the fast with people or i mean in many cases the people in the european side weren't actually fasting but to have that a, would have a been experience. great for last at almadan like because know, everybody was stuck at home that would have been awesome i was asked i was actually approached by several journalists um as that happened i guess they, they were just doing some research and they found my name and several journalists asked me if i was planning to do it again and i just didn't have the resources and just also where i was like i was stranded far away from home um, and just kind of focusing on my own survival. Otherwise, I totally would have done it. But hey, I'd be happy to try doing it again in the future. It was an amazing Gosh, experience. COVID's still, still alive and yeah, proud. So, yeah, so <laughs> I'm sure we're going to be spending a, a lot more at home this Ramadan too. So I think it's yeah. probably well needed this year too. Yeah. So as far as just the particulars for anybody out there who's like curious about how to start a nonprofit, like the yeah, I mean, I guess I'm getting a little bit sidetracked talking about the virtual yeah. project, but it was, but it was a fascinating experience. But yeah, the actual I'm starting sure. of a nonprofit was, yeah, I mean, one of the the reasons that I chose the Netherlands for anybody who's interested in starting a nonprofit in Europe, uh, most people there speak English, and it was relatively fast and relatively inexpensive, and uh, that was the practical reasons for it. I'd been directed to do that by some friends of mine who had done similar things or had heard advice along those lines. Went through so something similar here. Yeah. Yeah, because I actually, I don't know if you know this, but like this podcast kind of stemmed from my nonprofit. And like during COVID, mm -hmm. I was hosting like in-person discussion panels. And then, you know, COVID hit and I was like, I had p uh, events planned for like uh, April and in the summer and like the following year, I had works of talks of doing other talks in my community. And then COVID hit and I was like, oh crap, like, what am I going to do? Like, my whole basis is in person. What can mm -hmm. I do to still spread this message? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I feel like a podcast would be the best way because it's like a digital platform that people can access at any mm -hmm. time. And I can expand who I talk to and what communities I can talk to. And so mm -hmm. originally when I approached my friend who does my graphic design for me, she was like, she thought I was kind of crazy a little bit. She's like, are you sure? Like, I was like, I see so many people start podcasts. Like how hard can this be? And, and now here we are talking in our second season. So obviously I figured it out from then, but it was definitely a process. And and I can even relate to the process of starting a nonprofit because originally mine was a project kind of like many of your different projects. And I found like there were some hurdles I was going over because I wasn't a nonprofit. So a lot of places weren't, didn't find me legitimate or didn't legitimize yeah. what I was doing. So I felt like if I had that title, it would provide some more legitimacy and professionalism towards what I was actually trying to do for the community. I don't know if that's why you also went that route yeah. as well. Fairly, fairly similar. And I mean, it makes it, it makes it easier to, there's, 
as you probably know, I mean, I'm doing this in a European context, but it's not that different. Like at the end of the day, people want to know that there's a board behind you and people who are accountable and that you're doing paperwork. And uh, there's a lot of places that just will give you money if it, unless you're an organization. It's just the simple fact. So this kind of leads us into now the podcast. So we kind of, we went through a lot of different parts of your story. Now, the way I found you actually on Instagram was through your podcast. So can you touch a little bit about that? I know you kind of talked about your co-host a little bit, but why, why the podcast? Sure. So the podcast was something that I started in uh, summer of 2018 and travel had slowed down for me a bit after like years of just kind of constantly being on the move. And uh, some of that was just necessary because I was getting really burnt out. And I took some time away from doing the virtual dinner guest stuff too, for similar reasons. I was just burnt out. And after doing about 80 projects on like almost no budget, uh, it, was, it was pretty exhausting. And I, but I still had a hunger for connecting to other cultures and learning and also trying to, I wanted to share some of the things that I had experienced too. And the virtual dinner guest project, my role with that always was to be a facilitator and to be in the background, um, not to really guide people or tell them, you know, it's never been about me telling other people what to say or what to think. And it wouldn't work if it was oriented that way. It's just, I bring people together and then they make it their own. But with a podcast, there's some room there. You can, you can wear different hats. And I wanted to share some of the things that I've been learning and my own insights that I was taking from my journey and also things that I was learning from my guests while also you know, primarily focusing on their stories, passing the microphone specifically to, well, what our show focuses on, which is underrepresented communities and places and topics around the world. So... Uh, it was a way for me to continue traveling and engaging uh, before COVID, but not for totally different reasons. I mean, because I, I just wasn't as mobile at that time. And because it gave me an opportunity to share some of my own thoughts in ways that my previous work didn't. So I've, one of the things that, uh, I mean, it probably shouldn't be surprising, but but that's been really fulfilling about it is that it's just been this constant learning experience. Like anything I'm curious about, any community that I feel like, you know, I, I wish I could travel to that place, uh, or but I'd like to learn a little bit more first. It's, it's like a way to get a preview of what it'll be like to eventually visit some of these places someday. Um, and also at the same time, hopefully highlighting issues that uh, some communities are enduring, suffering through, or that just deserve more attention. And your message is what really connected me to your podcast because it's very similar to what we're trying to preach within the United States. And I lo love that you have a global aspect to it. And I know we already touched on a lot of your travels. And so I'm sure you said, you mentioned that you kind of, I give you too much credit that you kind of had some failures or some moments that that I don't know that people laughed or you are as laughable. So I'm sure you have some unique experiences that you probably could share or some encounters. That's something that really stuck with you um, that you would want to share with our audience. I think that the revelation that I, that I shared earlier just about curiosity is the thing that I keep coming back to and that it's work to 
to stay open-minded. At least for me, it is. Maybe for some people, it isn't. But I find, like, as I get older, um, and maybe as I get more frustrated or cynical in some ways, but, uh, yeah, I, I find that it can be harder to change my mind on certain things. And maybe that's because I've, you know, I've come by my opinions after um, seeing a lot of different alternatives and trying the alternatives out. That could be part of it. You know, at a certain point, you just need to make some decisions about what you stand for and what you believe in in your life. But I do think that it's important to continue to expose ourselves to situations that will challenge us. And not just, you know, on the surface level, like that are difficult to see if we can endure them. But if you're comfortable with your opinions, stop and ask yourself, when's the last time you put yourself in a position where they were where they were challenged by somebody who was capable of really delivering a challenge, you know? Um, and not just, I'm not talking about like a Facebook argument. I mean, like really out in the real world um, where we're not hiding behind our computers and where you got to think on your feet and where maybe you have to acknowledge that you don't have all the answers in the moment. And uh, that's humbling and it keeps us honest. And I think especially in the moment that we're in, where the fact that we can hide behind our computers already with just, you know, how much social media has taken off in the last few years, but now that like we're almost forced to interact that way because of the pandemic, um, I think if we're not careful, um, we can end up just kind of sticking to our silos, even when this is over and just insulating ourselves in the bubbles of like our social bubbles uh, that provide us with the level of familiar comforts that, that we prefer. And that's dangerous. That's how you lose sight of, of your community because your community ideally isn't just the people that you agree with. You know, it's the people that you share space with and that you share common needs with, even if you don't share a common worldview, you know, we all need the same things. So I think being receptive to challenge is something that I've learned along the ways like that it, it keeps you honest in your pursuits and being open to other people's criticisms of your ideas it ensures that what you're delivering for a community if you're trying to be someone that's helpful you need to be someone that's willing to listen to where maybe your ideas aren't working um, and not just make it about you know satisfying don't make your work about satisfying your ego make it about serving the people that it's supposed to serve by listening to them and I've went through plenty of those trials and I think it's scary being notified, like it's scary thinking that you're wrong and also having somebody challenge your views mm. and, tell and telling you you're wrong or trying to expand your, your mindset from what you know and what's familiar to you. And so I commend you for being able to take those steps. I feel like I'm still actively in those steps of of kind of expanding my worldview and through this podcast mm. has definitely helped a ton in kind of looking past my own like biases and kind of acknowledging wh where do I need to work on and what what did I what pre-misconceptions did I have about a community and how can I change those mindsets based on based on who I can talk to from those communities and I really like that you said that you should accept criticism from communities that you're trying to help because I totally agree with that because those communities are going to know what they need and if you're mm -hmm. like an outsider coming in like what what are you to tell those people what they need this is your first mm -hmm. time here so I think it's very it's very commendable to be like 
I'm here to help. Tell me what you need and what resources can I provide to you guys? How can I make this the most comfortable experience to provide some type of change? Um, I think that's, I think that's a little bit humbling to be able to do, like you said, that you kind of go back, go past what you think is right. And you kind of, you take the back wheel and let other people steer it. Um, I think that's really commendable. I I think it's ongoing too. It's it. And I'm sure I'm sure you're very aware of this as well in your own work that it's not like you don't ask the question once. It's like you 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 need to kind of consistently go back and check in and say like, am I getting this right? Is this working? And you're not going to satisfy everyone either. You know, there's going to be differing viewpoints in any community that you're working with as far as what their priorities and what they think their needs are and and uh, people's uh, um, estimations of you know the demands of their own culture are going to are going to vary too. So yeah. you're gonna have to navigate all of that stuff, but it's important to continue, like, to continually go back and check in with people. Yeah, I definitely. When I first started my nonprofit, I got my fair share of criticism on certain things, and then I just learned that you have to accept criticism, that you don't take it personally, yeah. because I and it, it's even for small things. Like when I first was making like my discussion panels, I was working on the branding of my organization, and I was making these flyers and I my graphic designer was helping me and our logo now is very you know it's gender neutral it appeals to both males females any type of person but at the time it was like when I first started making graphic design work for it it was very skewed female like a lot of the the colors we were using were pink and like pastelli and it looked cute so in my opinion you know I'm a girl I was like oh my god this is so cute when people see this they're definitely want to cut want to come to my events <laughs> and then I showed it to a graphic designer and he and I showed it to somebody else that works a lot with nonprofits. and they were like do you just want women to come to this and I was like no I, everybody's welcome everybody can come to this and there and then they also like saw the imaging and they're like this looks a little bit homemade like it doesn't look like professional like somebody made it on a computer like something that somebody would take seriously and we just spent probably a couple of months working on that like and I go crawling back to my graphic designer and I'm like I feel so bad I'm like we have to start fresh like this is not working it's like this graphic designer is saying this and then I understand what they're saying and I'm so glad we made that switch because we're still using that branding today but it's just crazy what a little what what listening to a little criticism can do for you yeah you have to know your your audience you know you have to know your community and that can take some doing to figure out you can have your own idea of who you think they are and your own idea of how to reach them and then you can realize that both of those things are wrong that who you think your people are in a sense isn't necessarily who you think who who isn't necessarily who they really are and then the way that the things that they connect with like if you're talking about a podcast the things that they connect with about your voice um, or about your ideas might be different than what you think they might want to connect with. So yeah, you have to check in for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. So we kind of touched on latitude adjustment podcast. So now you have an academy. So why did you decide to start that? So, I mean, I guess like the quickest answer to that is it's just a natural extension of our philosophy behind the podcast. So the podcast, as I mentioned before, its focus is highlighting underreported and or underrepresented communities, places, and uh, ideas or issues around the world. And 
by connecting with local stakeholders, like with local people whenever possible, people who are actually on the ground. And in cases where that's difficult or impractical, then we do speak to like experts or people who are living outside their countries, um, especially if there's security issues. So it seemed like a natural extension of that was just to say, well, also the next step is to just, instead of just passing the microphone to people so they can speak on our show, why don't we just teach them how to use it and make their own shows? And part of where that idea came from was also that I had been, I'm now in Lesvos, Greece, for people who don't know, like um, it's within sight of like the Turkish coastline. This is where people have been coming over in boats to get to Europe because Greece is the European Union. If they get here, then they're on European soil um, for purposes of claiming asylum. It's a sought after location. Um, and there's a whole backstory that we probably don't have time to get into about what the reality is actually like here in the refugee camps and how harsh the treatment and the conditions really are. But part of that story is that uh, I came here in 2015. So going back to like that moment I had getting off the bus in Belgrade, Serbia, um, that was in the summer of that year. And several months later, toward the end of the year, I remembered that experience and it had always bothered me. And I felt like I wish I could have done something more about it. And so I wound up in Lesbos in December of 2015 and January of 2016 as a volunteer um, when Moria camp was kind of um, first coming on, at least to the, inter the radar of the international press. And I saw what the conditions like were there. And then I did it. I ran around with the camera just filming people who were like sitting in the camp. And then it always stuck in my mind. A few years later, I decided I wanted to come back and do a follow up. And that was the last year. Right before COVID hit, I was here in exactly this time last year, basically, like January, February. And I did a series of podcast interviews. I walked around Moria camp, um, collecting the soundscape and posting stuff on Instagram, but then also just interviewing people, um, volunteers, locals, obviously lots of refugees and human rights workers, etc. cetera. Um, and during this past year since leaving Lesbos around this time last year um, a number of things have happened one Moria camp which at the time that I was here in February of 2020 to give you an idea of how crowded this place was this was the largest refugee camp in Europe before it burned down in September um, at the time that I was here last year the capacity of that camp is around 3,000 people and when I was there it was Built to over 22,000. It was just absolutely bursting um, and just not anywhere near enough facilities for anyone. One of the first things that I said when I went into the camp, and this is again before COVID, was that this was a public health disaster just waiting to happen. It's like somebody's trying to engineer it. Um, you couldn't ask for per more perfect conditions to just cause a, a catastrophe. And a few, like a couple months later, COVID hits, like basically weeks after I left. Um, and people get locked inside that camp for months, they can't leave, they barely have running water, let alone the ability to socially distance when they're as crowded as well, what I've just described. They did manage to like move some people off the island, I think is a response to the crowding, but it was nowhere near what was necessary. And then in September, people were completely desperate after months of being locked in this camp and it's still not clear how it happened but in early September I think it was early September it was sometime in September um, over the course of two days Moria camp burned down 
to the ground and people in the camp wound up thousands of people just wound up sleeping in the streets and while they Greek government erected another facility and this new facility is located on another disused military installation that used to be a shooting range and an artillery practice range for the Greek military and uh, it's a closed facility in the sense that well not closed in the official sense but closed in the sense that people inside are on lockdown and aren't really permitted to leave except for maybe a few hours a week and only a skeleton crew, whereas there were quite a few NGO workers and aid workers who were in Moria camp, only a fractional number of those are allowed into this new camp. The press is basically all but forbidden from accessing it. And there was a, what was effectively a gag order that was passed right around the time I arrived here back in December of 2020 for this trip uh, that said that if you are a worker in the camp, you cannot speak about cannot even speak about the things that you hear or that what you see in the camp, which is just chilling when you think about what people might be going through inside and what they've been enduring for years. And there's concerns about lead contamination in the ground because of the, like the, the bullets and the uh, ordnance that have been fired around in that camp for who knows how long. Um, uh, just all sorts of like it's it's cold freezing cold on it's right on the sea with like freezing cold winds hailstorms, uh the ground floods every time it rains and there's just little kids running around playing in the dirt and in the mud and people are standing in long lines in puddles to get food not enough showers for people and again still in the middle of a pandemic so the idea for the academy was if we can't get in what can we do to help people get the word out and if we teach people how to make their own podcast, that's one way for them to be able to, with very little like access to technology, something you can do really if you wanted to just with a phone, um, you could make your own show. And so over the course of five weeks in uh, December and January, we had our first cohort of asylum seekers that we trained in podcasting. And about half of our class was located inside the camp and participated over Zoom calls on their phones. And about 70% of our students didn't speak English at a level to where they could follow the class in English. We also had to have the other students translating for them simultaneously for five weeks, like everything that I was saying. Um, and slowly but surely, like we exchanged media files over phones and pictures and all that stuff. And we were able to put together our first series of podcasts and graduate our first nine students. And we're actually about to graduate another one here and post another episode in the next few days. And uh, there, that initial series of three episodes from the students was, uh, it's bilingual. The first half is in English and the second half is in Farsi because they were all Afghan um, and Farsi or Dari speakers. And yeah, it was, it was an experiment in something that we weren't sure was even possible to be honest. And I found myself in that situation a few times where I'll just take on an idea because it seems like something that just needs to be done. We need to figure out a way to help people get the word out. And so in responding to a need, took on something that I wasn't sure could be done. And because of the students devoting their time to it, and because of another partner that we had, who's been teaching uh, Refocus Media Labs, uh, they also have been training uh, asylum seekers here in Lesbos and videography and photography skills for years, we took on some of their students. And that was tremendously helpful in seeing the project through. And they provided us with some support uh, while we were teaching this first group. 
So that was the basic idea. It was a response. It was an extension of our own mission to highlight underreported and underrepresented communities, and then a way to help a community get it, the word out itself and to self-advocate. Because in many ways, that's one of the more effective ways to spread the word about human rights issues is to just put the tools of advocacy in the hands of the people who are experiencing those things themselves. And I think this shows that you can do very, you can do a lot with very little. I think in the, in Western society, American culture, we think we have to have all of these big tools and we need all of this stuff, including me. Like when I started my podcast, I was like, I need an external mic. I need headphones. You know, I need all of this stuff for the best audio quality. I need this, this, this. So all of these things I need to pay for all additional materials. But you're showing through this podcast academy that these students can produce their own podcast from their phone with very, with very little. And so I think that's kind of a lesson for us all that we, we can work with what we have to produce something good. Yeah, I mean, the, the barrier to entry is low. I will say that one thing that is hard to get around is the need for support. You know, that's actually what we're trying to do right now is to get people to support um, the sustainability of this project. We did this for free in order to just prove to ourselves and other people that it could be done. But now we're in a place where we're like, okay, if we want to keep doing this and scale it up and make it sustainable, we're actually going to need some community support to make that happen. And hopefully you're able to get that and continue this project because I'm sure it's so beneficial for all the students that you've been impacting so far. So you've, you've traveled all over and right now you're in Greece. Do you plan on going anywhere else in the world once the world feels a little bit more safer or are you kind of putting your roots down in Greece? I'm going to Spain next week. So that's actually where I'm resident. So for me, in a way, it's kind of like returning to a home away from home. So I'll be uh, in Spain, hopefully. I mean, I have to do what everybody else does traveling these days. I got to take the COVID test and get the QR code on my phone and hope everything goes well. But that's where I'm headed next week, back to Spain. Is that, are you planning to go live back there? Yeah. Yeah, I'll be there for a while. And I'm going to see if I can't continue to offer these academies from wherever I am. I mean, to be honest, like in a perfect world where we don't have COVID anymore and I can travel wherever I want to. I always want to be on location, you know, whether it's making podcasts or whether it's doing these academies, but there is the possibility of being able to do all of this remotely, um, which is part of its attraction to me in the first place. So we'll see. I'm going to continue making the podcast from wherever I am and I might very well continue with the podcast Academy from Spain too. Oh, that's really cool. So are you, do you not have like a permanent place that you really call home? Do you kind of just, you just travel like the entire year, usually before COVID? Uh, no, I've been based in Spain on and off for a while. So I guess I would say Spain is where I'm actually a resident. So yeah, Spain would be home these days. Although where in Spain, that's changed a bit. I've moved around. I mean, I don't, even if I'm in a country, I like, even when I lived in the U S I never really stayed in one place for very long. I think I've been a resident of like six different States in the U S. Um, so oh, wow. yeah, I just can't imagine really, moving. Stay still. Yeah. Can't imagine moving. And like, I'm sure you probably learned to live with very little because you, yeah. if you travel, like you travel a ton, you don't want to lug around all of no. all these different no. things. You learn to streamline your life very 
quickly. Yeah. It becomes a huge point of stress if you're having to move things around all the time. So yeah, my whole life basically fits in a couple of bags. So we kind of do this segment at the end of each interview, and I'm sure with all the projects that you're doing, I'm sure you have some things to share with our audience, but we have something mm -hmm. called Be an Ally segment. So it's basically what are you doing this month, this week, or even today to really increase your knowledge about certain communities, and what would you suggest for somebody that wants to start this process of curiosity and doesn't really know where to start? Is there a certain book that you read or maybe something on Netflix like a documentary or certain Instagram accounts that have really good information that they share? Um, There's a lot in that question. <laughs> it's, so, a loaded, it's a loaded question a little bit. It's very vague and broad. No, but like, I don't know what loaded, but there's a lot in it. So I'm not sure which, where to start. Like there's social media, there's... Um, just one wow. of those categories, not necessarily okay. one from each of those categories, but just like one thing that you maybe done that was kind of impactful that you're like, oh, I would, I, I want to kind of share this with you. Hmm. I know I'm going to kick myself later if I don't come up with something right now, um, for sure. So let's see. Um, documentaries. Uh, there's just so many topics out there that I feel like I'm going to be neglecting communities um, no matter what I choose, but something that I watched that was eye-opening for me was about civil rights in the U.S. was the documentary The 13th. I think Americans need to know their own history when it comes to uh, racial inequality and, the, and, and get comfortable with the fact that we may need to be uncomfortable with who we really are as a country. I mean, speaking specifically to people that come from like white European ancestry, um, that uh, yeah, there's still a lot of wounds that have yet to really be addressed. And I think that the way to treat certain wounds is that you have to really kind of go back in there and open them up and expose them to the air. You can't bury them and just kind of pretend you can move on with your history. And I've seen that play out in so many places that I've traveled, like unaddressed historical trauma where like subsequent generations just don't learn their history in part because nobody can really agree on what it is. And so then it just gets revised in ways that are toxic. And I can give you three very clear examples of that that I've seen in my travels in very different locations. One is the US and the way that reconstruction failed after the abolition of slavery and white supremacy was allowed to just reign unchecked in the South for like another hundred years. And we've still never really addressed that issue in the US. And then another is Lebanon and uh, the failure to really address, you know, the wounds of the civil war and the, the sectarian divisions in that country and entrenched sectarianism. Um, and another is Spain um, and its civil war. And I would say I'm just starting to become a student of Spanish history. And what I would say to people who want to kind of understand the rise of like fascism and uh, and also some ideas that maybe uh, don't get much attention as far as like lefty ideology in the US, like things tend to very quickly just get a label of socialism or communism slapped on them and then dismissed instead of explored more critically. I'd say a great like place to start studying history would be to study the 1936 to 1939 Spanish Civil War, 
which was really like the prequel to the Second World War. Like Hitler and Mussolini were actively involved in supporting the fascists in that war. And it's a country in Europe where the fascists literally won and continued to rule until the 1970s. And most Americans, probably most Westerners, don't know this. That uh, Francisco Franco, who was supported by Adolf Hitler and by Benito Mussolini um, in his civil war from in the, in the late 1930s, like his side won the war and they stayed in power until the 1970s. And there are mass graves all over Spain and still like cultural and, and political um, and familial level grievances in that country that remain unaddressed. So it was also kind of this, um, this petri dish of competing ideologies from like uh, anarchism and communism to far right uh, fascism. Um, uh, so it's a fascinating case study in competing ideologies too that we don't really learn much about in in the West. So yeah, there's a there's a cool book that I would suggest that people read written by George Orwell, but it's not like some dystopian novel like 1984. It's a firsthand account of his experience fighting in the Spanish Civil War called Homage to Catalonia. I think that that would be something that I would recommend for people to read. Thank you so much for sharing with our audience. Can you tell us uh, where they can find you, Latitude Adjustment Podcast, all of the different mm -hmm. projects sure. you're doing? Sure. So rather than make like a really long list of stuff that's going to be hard for people to remember, I'll keep it pretty simple. Um, you can, because everything that we're doing with like the nonprofit um, or, or I should say that the Virtual Dinner Guest Project and Latitude Adjustment Podcast fall under our nonprofit, uh, which is openroadsmedia.org. But really, if you want to find out more about what we're doing right in this moment, uh, everything is focused on the podcast and the podcast academy. So go to latitudeadjustmentpod.com. And to find our podcasts, just click on the tab for podcasts and you'll find the episodes that we produce because Leila and I are just making a show. Um, like any other podcast, and then to find the episodes that we're co-producing um, and teaching people how to make, more specifically displaced peoples, just click on the tab for Podcast Academy. So go to latitudeadjustmentpod.com, and if I can plug it, we're trying to raise funds to make this more sustainable. We've got a GoFundMe campaign going right now. Um, so if you want to help, uh, if you want to help displaced peoples become podcasters. Uh, please support our GoFundMe campaign. And you can find all of that on our website. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much again for being on. It was so nice to have you all the way from Greece. And I'm so glad the internet didn't cut off on us. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much, Summer. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate the opportunity to share. Music